you will care about Uncle Harry while you're watching it in the picture house. One of the stars, Miss Geraldine Fitzgerald, makes you care. I'm very proud of her. We graduated from the same theater over in Dublin. And I knew she was a real actress, and I mean a real one, when I brought her over from Ireland to join the Mercury. She proved herself with us in New York and then went on to Hollywood, where up to Uncle Harry. She's been mostly wasted. Now, however, those in movie land who push the push buttons and push people around are sitting up and rubbing their sleepy eyes. Seems a great artist has been found, the kind who wins little gold statues at the end of the year. You're listening to episode 84 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. In 1943, Geraldine Fitzgerald had a meeting with studio boss Jack Warner. Not for the first time, she went to his office to ask Warner for better parts, the type of roles that Ingrid Bergman had been playing. Jack Warner cut her off with an an indignant, how dare you mention your name and Ingrid Bergman's in the same sentence. Geraldine should have known that her career in the studio would never go as far as the promise it had shown when she received the Best Supporting Actress nomination for Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights was only her second picture in Hollywood after her debut in Dark Victory, playing the sympathetic friend to doomed heiress Betty Davis. Jack Warner's managerial style as studio boss was to cut his stars down to size at every opportunity. For example, Betty Davis waited at his office door each morning for six months to beg him for a loan out to do of human bondage. And when her performance made the film colony sit up and say Oscar, he ignored it, lest it go to Betty's head and give her more power in their contract negotiations. She eventually sued him and lost. James Cagney read law books in his dressing room to figure out how to get Warner to pay him what he was worth. Warner ruined Kay Francis when her star rose too high for his liking. He made her feed lines to newcomers in their screen tests, a humiliating task for Queen of the Lot. And as for stars who worked hard and never fought Warner or the front office, like Joan Blondell, well, she was overworked, underpaid, and typecast. Geraldine Fitzgerald didn't understand that Hollywood was about power rather than just developing talent. Friends like Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, Humphrey Bogart, and John Huston tried to explain how the studio system worked. Ultimately, Fitzgerald rejected the rules of the game in Hollywood and returned to her first love, the theater. Although she did not make concessions that would have led to a career that matched the size of her talent, Geraldine held on to a private life. For decades, she guarded one of the biggest secrets in Hollywood. Fitzgerald is often overshadowed by her legacy, by the legacy of her countrywoman, Maureen O'Hara. In a list of the best Irish screen actors, published earlier this year in the Irish Times, O'Hara took first honors as the number one star. Geraldine, by contrast, came in at number 30. In some way, Geraldine flew under the radar and escaped the burden of embodying a nation. 
She never had to submit to playing the wench parts in an off-the-shoulder peasant blouse in the same way that O'Hara did. For though she stalled in supporting roles, Geraldine often steals the picture. I've been thinking about her ever since I did the podcast episode on the Gay Sisters, where she steals scenes from Barbara Stanwyck, a Herculean task for which most mortals are unequipped. Fitzgerald does it as the forever gasping for it, horned up sister who has to be sent away to Britain to keep the family name free of scandals brought on by her lusty appetites. That's the thing about Fitzgerald. She's a slow burn from convent school girl to risking it all for the man she desires. She moves on screen with an ocean of unquenchable passion. Geraldine Fitzgerald was born in Greystones, County Wicklow, on the 24th of November, 1913. Her mother had been overcome by a domineering husband and the demands of raising four children, and often retreated to a sickbed at the top of the house for weeks at a time. Geraldine's father was the head of a law firm that bears the distinction of appearing in Ulysses as Joyce cataloged the perambulations of Leopold Bloom on the 16th of June. Geraldine went to convent school. When she was 16, her father, whom she feared, spanked her for misbehaving. During this episode, he fiddled with Geraldine, as she told her son many years later. Her mother had intervened and sent Geraldine across the water to stay with friends. The riotous feelings Geraldine experienced throughout her life swelled up like the tide. Her emotional waters were made more treacherous by the sense of fear, fear that she was unprotected, unsafe, and that she would be left alone, abandoned. In a diary she had written many years later, of the great love she had for her Aunt Georgina. She noted, I have come a long way, have I not, from the nights I used to walk the dark tree-lined roads and greystones with my most dear Georgina Arabella Roper. And the treetops made archways over the bumpy mud roads, and the sea sighed like a a tranquil giant, or roared and pounded on the cold, dark, dangerous shore. And so the train, arc-low to Dublin, passed through the night unheard of on its one-gauge track against murmurs and moanings of the sea. We both walked slowly up and down and around the roads, both talking in, in dreams, she of what had passed, myself of what I hoped would come, she of how one morning she awoke to find birds, flocks of birds perching on her bedstead, squatting on the brass rails at the head and the foot of the bed, Four white birds quietly sitting on each of the four brass rails, which decorated the four corners of the bed of this beautiful young creature. While she lay there, as at home with the birds as they were with her, her mother came up to her room to say, 8.30, Georgie, time to get up. She saw the birds grouped around this drowsy, black-haired, blessed one, and she cried, Georgie, if this ever happens again, I will send you to the lunatic asylum. How funny, how heartbreaking. I think it broke Georgie's heart. Geraldine's first move after she left the nuns was art school. 
Well, she studied in Kildare Street. She went to Sean Keating, one of Ireland's best leading artists, and asked where she would go next, Paris or Rome. Keating looked at her closely for two full minutes and then told Geraldine she should go and get married. Instead of finding a husband, Geraldine accompanied her aunt Sheila Richards, who was an actress, to a rehearsal in the Gate Theatre. One day in 1932, Geraldine was then cast in a production of Blood and Sand, which followed with other roles in the gate. From there, she was offered roles in the British film industry. When Geraldine first started acting in London, she shared accommodations on a houseboat on the Thames in Chiswick with two poor actors. The actors were so hard up that they shared one pair of socks between them for auditions. If they both had interviews at the same time, one of the men would paint his ankles with dark shoe polish. While she lived with the actors, she was often followed from the bus stop at night by Patrick Hamilton, the playwright later of Gaslight and Rope, among other thrillers. He lurked in and out of the doorways behind her, following her home. Geraldine felt as though her life were in danger and ran until she made it back to the houseboat. At this time, she took a lover. She would not mention his name. One night, the lover threw her down a flight of stairs, and then he stood there watching as she slowly pulled herself up and limped away. At one point, home in Ireland for a visit, Geraldine's brother introduced her to Eddie Lindsay Hogg, a horse-mad Brit. She married Eddie in 1936. In 1938, Geraldine and Eddie arrived in New York. She auditioned for a role in the Mercury Theater with the company's producer, John Hausman. She spoke with him about playing the part of Ellie Dunn in the company's production of George Bernard Shaw's play, Heartbreak House. It didn't seem to go well. He dismissed her with a noncommittal, thank you, let's keep in touch. But then Orson Welles swanned in the star and director, who took one look at Geraldine and said she's perfect. He turned to her and told her the part was hers if she wanted it. It wasn't simply Geraldine's appearance that mesmerized Orson Welles. They both shared the same origins as actors on the stage in The Gate. Both Welles and Fitzgerald joined productions in The Gate based on some form of mistaken identity. Wells was cast after he turned up a brash 16-year-old full of big talk and gave the impression that he was older than beyond his years. When Geraldine accompanied her dear Aunt Sheila, who was part of the Gates' troupe, she was mistaken for someone else when she joined the company. The Mercury Theatre revival of Shaw's Heartbreak House had a cast that included Wells, Vincent Price, and George Kalouris. During rehearsals, Wells was consistently at odds with Caloris, who argued with the nearly 23-year-old director. Wells was not alone in his feud with Caloris. At one point, in a heated row, Geraldine kicked George Caloris in the shin. And I'm sure Geraldine's gallant gesture landed right in Orson Welles' heart. Geraldine recalled that receiving Wells' attention was like being caught in the beam of a lighthouse. When you were caught in his beam, you were bathed in its full illumination, 
and when it moved on, you were plunged into darkness. Reviews of Heartbreak House were mostly unenthusiastic. One of the most savage reviews came from Mary McCarthy. In her review, she wrote, Mr. Wells, as an actor, has always seemed to secrete a kind of viscous holy oil with which he sprays the rough surfaces of his roles. She trashed his performance as sentimental and shallow. But Geraldine Fitzgerald caught the eye of at least one person in the audience. Hal Wallace, head of production for Warner Brothers, caught the show and signed Geraldine under the standard seven-year contract. Geraldine fought for a clause that allowed her the right to work on the stage in New York for part of the year. Geraldine made her American film debut in Dark Victory as the friend to the doomed Betty Davis. Geraldine plays the role with total devotion, without creating any suspicion that when Betty meets her end, that Geraldine will walk off into the sunset with the doctor played by George Brent. Geraldine followed with a loan out for Goldwyn Studio in Wuthering Heights. Forty years after Wuthering Heights premiered, Laurence Olivier noted that the only thing in the picture that still held up was Geraldine's performance. She received the Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress for playing a woman who becomes a shell of her former self, reduced to an emotional vagrant, begging for scraps of of affection from Olivier's sadistic Heathcliff. And she does it without a shred of trickery from makeup or wardrobe. She gets up out of the chair in her first scene like the wreck of the Hesperus. Geraldine goes from Belle of the Ball to Husk of a Woman in the runtime. It's a shattering performance. Geraldine struggled in Hollywood. She recalled in her journal, I truly honestly thought that the film studios were just trying to make masterpieces and that when they didn't, they were terribly upset. I was just not naive. I was crashingly stupid. Countless people, friends like Humphrey Bogart, Betty Davis, and Vladimir Sokolov, tried to explain the commerciality to me, told me to play the game Warner's way. I would not listen. I fought with everybody. Jack Warner was not the only man in the film colony who gave her trouble. At one party, director Lewis Milestone made a wisecrack about Geraldine turning into a lesbian because she invited her agent, Gloria Safier, who was gay, to move in and share expenses. Geraldine threw a drink in his face. Once, she was taken to a hotel suite by the screenwriter, Gene Markey, to meet with producer Walter Wanger. When Marky left them alone, Geraldine realized that she had been set up. Wanger chased her around the furniture until she eventually escaped. I should note that she considered Marky a friend. He became the godfather to her son, um, Michael. Marky was also the ex-husband of Wanger's current wife, Joan Bennett. Geraldine noted that she tried to judge the artistic merit of a picture by the script and frequently fought for revisions and changes. Later, she realized that the script was only one element of a picture. As a purely visual form, a script could not guarantee the merit on screen. 
Geraldine was often put on suspension when she turned down a part. Since Eddie Lindsay Hogg had no prospects, Geraldine was the sole breadwinner for her husband and her son Michael, born in 1940. She didn't have the luxury of staying long on suspension without salary and inevitably would have to submit to whatever script the studio assigned. Like many stars who feuded with the front office, Geraldine began to distrust the projects they sent her. The official version of the Hollywood history is that she turned down the role of Bridget Shaughnessy in The Maltese Falcon when Hal Wallace had a production sent her the script. But in an interview, John Huston gave another version to the story. He wanted Geraldine for the part. She was his first choice. But the studio gave it to Mary Astor instead, presumably, because Astor had a better working relationship with the front office. Geraldine struggled for control over her career and to be taken seriously as an actress. In one diary entry, she wrote, When I first set out on my acting career, I was only anxious to be understood as an intellect. Now, as I grow older, I wish to make plain to an audience the happiness and the terrors of passions. In those sicknesses of humanity, it seems to me, one touches the heart of every human being, be he idiot or genius or saint. I think I never understood anything until I experienced these feelings. Geraldine explored her feelings even more when her husband Eddie left the States and returned to Ireland in 1943 for the duration of the war. She had the freedom to carry on affairs and establish close friendships. She took a house in Malibu Beach next door to Orson Welles' ex-wife Virginia Wells, who was raising their daughter Christopher. In her memoir, Christopher Wells recalls that her father Orson lived next door for several months with Aunt Geraldine, as she called her. Orson's firstborn would skulk around the patio while he worked on scripts, waiting for him to notice her. The celebrated war photographer Robert Kappa was one of Geraldine's lovers. He took photos of her holding Michael at the beach that are as glamorous as anything from George Harrell. When Geraldine told her son about him, she joked that Kappa was totally unreliable, and plus, he was having an affair with Ingrid Bergman at the same time. Geraldine also had an affair with Henry Miller that began around this time. In one letter she saved from the uh, time, he asks if Michael still looks like Orson. In August 1944, Geraldine was featured on the cover of Life magazine. The reporter who had interviewed her for the cover story revealed something she didn't know, that Charlie Chaplin had been in love with her. He had hired a private detective to follow her husband, Eddie, hoping he would find some dirt that would prompt Geraldine to file for divorce. Geraldine had been surprised. She knew Chaplin, but she didn't think he was all that interesting. The most amusing thing about him, she recalled, was that when he wanted to describe someone, he would act out a little pantomime, so you would feel you really knew that person. When she was 29, alone in the States, her husband back in Ireland, she said a little prayer before she entered a party one night 
Please, God, let there be someone in there who will save my life. Inside, she met the man who would become her second husband, Stuart Scheftel, grandson of Isidore Strauss, the founder of Macy's department store. Stuart had been known as Boy when he was a young upstart in Oxford, and it stuck over the years. With Boy, Geraldine felt she could find safe harbor from the riotous waters in Hollywood. With a successful businessman for a husband, it might be possible to break free of her studio contract. At the end of the war, she returned to see family. Eddie was living with her parents in Greystones. Geraldine arrived sick with fever that turned out to be pneumonia and dropped in a faint at the doorstep. Her purpose for the visit was to ask Eddie for a divorce. She married Boy Sheftel in 1946. That same year, Geraldine made her last picture under contract for Warners. That was Nobody Lives Forever, co-starred with John Garfield. She looks great in the picture, but she doesn't have much to do playing the good girl who makes Garfield swear off the rackets. Geraldine returned to the theater in New York. In 1956, Orson Welles invited Geraldine to play Goneril to his Lear. When she told him that her son Michael had ambitions for the stage and asked if he might be welcome to attend a rehearsal, Orson invited the 16-year-old to watch all of them. During one rehearsal session, Michael sat in the audience while Orson paced the aisles. At one point, Orson paused behind Michael laid a hand on his shoulder, and grasped it twice in a meaningful way. At least it seemed meaningful upon reflection when Michael started connecting the threads that seemed to tie him to Orson Welles. Michael was drawn to the theater, something about the magic of collaboration that occurred when a group of high-spirited individuals pulled together for a performance reached him in his core he thought about taking a stage name. Michael always hated his surname, Lindsay Hogg. At Choate, his boarding school, it was cumbersome, so teachers had shortened it to Hogg, but that seemed rather coarse, especially since Michael had a stout build. Hogg became Hogue. The schoolboys renamed him Pudge Hogue. Anyway, when Michael was a teenager, he toyed around with a stage name. He wanted a one-syllable surname. One of the first that he considered was Wells. He asked his mother what she thought. Geraldine was having a drink before bed. Vodka and water was her drink. Michael later thought that it was like drinking Sterno. Geraldine didn't think it was such a good idea. When he asked why, she admitted it was because people would think that Orson was really his father. She told him about the rumor that Orson was his father. Michael struggled to understand. At one point, his father Eddie was in New York. Orson had split from his wife Virginia. Geraldine had been living in Orson's house in Beverly Hills. We'd go out to dinner, she told Michael, and you know how people like to put two and two together and come up with three. Michael pressed his mother for the source of the rumor. She admitted that one night she and Orson were going to elope. 
She was with Eddie in New York. She and Orson were planning to run away to New Jersey and elope. But then she said when she kissed Orson in the car, suddenly she felt it was the kiss of a brother. And so she went back to Eddie in the hotel room. Orson noted that no harm was done when he dropped her off to find Eddie asleep in the bed. For most of his life, Michael Lindsay Hogg was dogged by the question of who his father really was. Michael Lindsay Hogg's memoir lacks the usual chronological pattern, even if it's largely told in order, following his years from first memories in their Malibu beach house um, through the years. Further down the beach where he lived with his mother was Marion Davies and William Randolph Hearst, who one day invited him in for a fruit cup. All he needed to say for an invitation inside the beach house was that he was Geraldine's son. The film colony recognized its own. He wasn't yet able to read. Michael didn't learn until he was about nine. Hearst noticed his cartoon figure sidekick and talked to him about why the boy liked comics, because they used pictures to emphasize a story. In many ways, that's what Michael's memoir does, gives us snapshots, pictures of what his life with Geraldine Fitzgerald was like and how he came to learn the real story of his parentage. His story is a gripping page turner, one of the best published by the child of a star. He loved his mother. His whole being gravitated towards her like the pull of the tides. All he ever wanted was to have his mother alone to himself. Having to share his mother produced feelings of anger and violence. Once he even acted out those feelings. After the first night that boy stayed over in the Malibu beach house and he shared his mother Michael took a sharp stick and attacked the frogs in the garage that lay cooling on the cement floor. He smashed the frogs to bits in a jealous frenzy. When Michael was 17, he went with his mother and stepfather boy to a party at Gloria Vanderbilt's house. Gloria was one of his mother's closest friends. He was sitting by himself when Tammy Grimes approached. She was married to Christopher Plummer and mother to daughter Amanda. Tammy asked Michael if it were true that Orson was his father. He wanted to know why she asked. It's just what people said, what she heard. And you look like him, she noted. Michael replied that his mother said it wasn't true. Tammy asked what he thought. Michael let it drop, let the idea hang in the air. And that seemed to confirm Tammy's suspicions. Michael felt as though he had discovered a bit of social cachet, that it gave him the possibility to become more interesting. In 1959, Michael had failed exams in Oxford and was struggling to figure out his next move until he could sit them again. At the end of the year, Hilton Hilton Edwards rang, He was one of the founders of the Gate Theater and asked if Michael would like to join Orson Welles' production of Chimes at Midnight. Rehearsals began in 1960. Opening night was set for Belfast, and then they were scheduled to move the production to Dublin and then tour other cities in Europe. Michael was only paid six pounds a week for a small part, but each day before rehearsal, 
Orson gave him a big Cuban cigar, which made Michael feel rich and which everyone else in the cast noticed. The cast also noticed that Michael started wearing a bow tie, just like Orson. During one grueling rehearsal right before they opened, Orson roared abuse at Michael and stormed off the stage. Hilton Edwards tried to soothe Michael by telling him that Orson was just hungry and full of nerves. He shouldn't let it get to him. Later, after Orson was fortified by a roast chicken and a bottle of wine, rehearsal resumed. Michael arrived on the stage in overdone ghost white makeup. Orson took one look at him and burst into hearty, rollicking laughter. Michael took it as amends that all was forgiven and he was a loved member of the troupe again. When the show moved to Dublin, it evolved into a one-man show. Orson was either bored or overwhelmed and dispensed with a fall staff production and told stories and chatted with the audience each night in his elastic capacity. After the show one night, over dinner, Orson spoke seriously to Michael about his career ambitions and encouraged him to be a director. Orson invited Michael to be his assistant director for a West End revival of The Rhinoceros starring Laurence Olivier. Geraldine was in Dublin at the time and threw a party for Orson. She told Michael not to be too upset if the plans for his role as Orson's assistant fell through. Michael rankled at his mother's warning, but she was trying to prepare him that Orson was unreliable. Chimes at midnight closed in Dublin. Plans for the tour fell through because they lacked financing. Then the play with Olivier fell through when his ego clashed with Orson's. It was three years before Michael saw Orson again. In the meantime, Michael worked in RTE, the Irish National Broadcaster, directing television programs. In 1962, while he directed shows for RTE, Michael had a nervous breakdown. For a year, he struggled to keep it together. A doctor prescribed a series of tranquilizers and sleeping pills. Finally, Michael realized that his trouble stemmed from the fact that after Boy recovered from a heart attack, Michael struggled with these uneasy feelings of desire at the prospect of having his mother alone for once, finally. Michael left RTE and signed to direct Ready, Steady, Go for ITV in London. From there, he directed music videos and films for the Beatles and the Stones, among other acts of the era. One night, Michael was out celebrating in Caprice with a girlfriend. Orson was there, installed at a table full of investors, doing his dog and pony show to entertain the money men. Michael's date asked, isn't that your father? After Orson had stopped by for a chat. Apparently, the rumor mill extended far beyond Hollywood. Another night, when he was scheduled to work late on the set filming The Beatles, Orson rang and invited Michael to join him for dinner in Caprice. Orson wanted Michael to meet Marlena Dietrich. Michael apologized, saying he couldn't, he had to work. But you always pick dinner with Marlena over The Beatles, Michael, always. Geraldine thrived in the theater over the years. 
In the 1960s, she partnered with a Capuchin brother to stage the medieval Everyman Saga, which launched, launched the Everyman Theater Project. They went to neighborhoods around New York City with an open call for auditions, bringing untrained actors to the passion of the stage. Their community theater initiative was awarded the city's highest honors. When she was 62, Geraldine worried that Boy was in bad financial shape. She put together a one-woman show and launched a tour. She told stories about her life in in, um, Ireland and in Hollywood. She said anything on stage to keep the wolf from the door. She gave up taxis and new clothes to economize and save for a retirement. Geraldine turned to acting, or sorry, turned to directing in the theater. She scored a Tony nomination for her first time as director for Mass Appeal in 1982. She also worked steadily in television. And she made a splash on screen next to oafish men like Dudley Moore in Arthur and its sequel and Rodney Dangerfield in Easy Money. Geraldine suffered from Alzheimer's for the last decade of her life, but in one of her lucid moments in the beginning before she was put under care, Michael finally asked her directly who his father was, Eddie or Orson. Instantly, she replied, why, Orson, of course, you even look like him. But then she tried to dial it back afterwards and return to the official story she had always used. After both parents died, Michael reconciled himself that Eddie had been his father. Sure, Geraldine had an affair with Orson, but she'd had others. Michael believed that his mother used the rumor about Orson as a form of Hollywood capital when it proved useful. In 2009, through a series of letters with Gloria Vanderbilt, Michael finally received the truth. Gloria had been one of Geraldine's closest friends. In 1980, when Michael was a director and was waiting for an actor strike to end so that he could begin shooting Brideshead Revisited, he struck up an affair with Gloria. It was passionate, but it didn't last long as their lives drew them in separate directions. Geraldine had died in 2005 at 91. Michael began corresponding with Gloria and finally asked if she knew anything about the rumors that had been circulating about who his father was. Gloria wrote that Geraldine told her that Orson was his father. In maddening fashion, she didn't say more than that. Michael dashed off a note thanking her for the confirmation and then asked for more detail. In another letter, Gloria explained, Geraldine told me at 10 Gracie Square, sitting in the library, I have never told anyone of our conversation until now telling you, and I never will. She feared mostly what you might think of her and also knew that boy would not take it well. Remember the young age you were at the time, also the attitude of many at the time. She said she couldn't risk how knowing might change your opinion of her. Then, as the years passed and you were grown up, it is my feeling it was too late. As we get older, it can take a terrible toll to open a secret door, shattering the balance of a peace hard won. She spoke in quiet tones, relieved to confide in someone she trusted. 
She was not regretful and told me that she and O had been passionately in love and involved, one never regrets that, and that it continued on throughout the years. Gloria Vanderbilt was custodian for many skeletons in many closets, but she let one tumble out. She did Michael a great kindness to bring clarity to the gossip. In another letter, Gloria Vanderbilt confirmed that Orson Welles knew that Michael was his son. Gloria wrote, no wonder he wanted you to meet Marlena Dietrich. Gloria observed what I felt when I was reading Michael's account. Orson wouldn't just invite some novice director to dinner with Marlena. Boy was old-fashioned from conservative family who had not been exactly thrilled when he married a a film star in the first place. A son out of wedlock would have been a deal breaker. Now that the great Hollywood mystery has been solved, permit me to return to 1945 for the end of this episode. In The Strange Affair of Uncle Harry, Geraldine Fitzgerald gives one of her best performances. She plays a woman who is left with the crust of a pie devoured long ago. Geraldine's character, Letty Quincy, is a forerunner to Blanche Dubois, a northern cousin and fellow member of a dying sorority of women born to houses where the money ran out. For women like Letty and Blanche, being a lady has no further currency. Ruffle blouses, anti-macassars, and elaborate tea sets are poor equipment for women of the Depression. Geraldine's Letty has retreated to a hothouse among rare flora, reading poetry. In her overheated green room, she reclines on a chaise long, arrayed as though she were posing for an oil painting. Her brother Harry, played by George Sanders, bounds in to see her first thing after work. Solicitous, he asks after her health. George finds Letty as intoxicating as the collection of rare plants in the room. Geraldine underplays the heady drama of the setting and notes the doctor said it was nothing, just my foolish heart. At dinner, Harry pays deference to to Letty as the lady of the house, rather than his older sister Esther, who performs more of the daily work in running the place. Esther, played by Moyna McGill, who was mother to Angela Lansbury, has to whine for attention from Harry, must bribe him with pies she spends all day baking. Letty, by contrast, doesn't have to do much in her little family romance. In one scene, he brings Letty a bouquet of her favorite yellow roses, reenacting courtship rituals. On his part, Harry has no imagination. He paints fabric patterns each day in a textile mill, the same exact rows over and over again, without variation or originality. Harry is only special or interesting because Letty makes him so. At dinner, Harry casts his eyes down at the table when he lets slip that he has plans for the evening. He looks like a guilty husband about to cheat on his wife when he tells his sister that he has to entertain a fashion consultant in from New York. 
Letty is permissive, offers approval, and suggests what they should do of an evening in the sleepy New England town. Why not take her to the house where George Washington stayed, she suggests. Behind Letty's recommendation, there might be a reference to that part about never tell a lie. Letty wants to be part of what happens to Harry, even if it's only secondhand. What makes Geraldine's performance remarkable is how she makes her character the most compelling when really she's meant to represent a mothballed version of womanhood, especially once Ella Raines enters the picture. Geraldine and Ella look so much alike, like sisters. There's a definite twin aspect going on, which suggests a radically different worldview. The say maybe 10 years of age difference between them might as well be 100. Letty Quincy is a 19th century feminine arts model of decorative from a sickbed and dress like a little boy in a suit and launch into the world as an independent woman. Deborah is brash. She takes up space. She moves about with her hands in her pockets, feet planted wide apart, gender-bending clothes, and dashes around town. Often, her body language is more masculine than George Sanders, who for once abandons his rakish superiority around women and is batted about between them like a ball of yarn. This is a woman's picture, and the women run the show. Where Deborah is forthright and candid, Letty is covert and evasive. Deborah has options unavailable to Letty, which is one of the reasons I find her character so compelling. If Deborah loses Harry, how is she really put out? She will still have her position, her salary, her freedom. But if Letty loses Harry, she loses everything. She loses the object of her erotic play, the games and stories that keep her on track. Without Harry, she's just a poor spinster living in the past. Letty and her feminine arts have no commercial value. She has nothing to sell on the market, unlike the accomplished young woman who slithers in to steal away her brother. Everything Geraldine does is deliberate, yet done with so much grace and panache that it's easy to overlook. When she first meets Ella Rain's character, Deborah, for tea, Geraldine orchestrates a private conference with a career gal. She sends Harry off, clueless, to fetch a bottle of sherry. Then she sends Hester off to find a picture. The two women sit with the dying dog between them, that symbol of a shared childhood with Harry that's losing its power. Geraldine gives a speech while she swirls a teaspoon in a cup as though it were a dagger. The career girl listens with body language that's defiant. Geraldine's hyper-femininity clashes with the masculine body language that Ella has with her hand in her pocket, one hand on her hip, her foot tucked under her bottom. Ella's physical presence expands each time Geraldine tries to claim territory. During another showdown, in Deborah's hotel room, Geraldine arrives dressed to remind her rival that her people stepped off the Mayflower. Designed by Travis Banton, Geraldine Fitzgerald sports a thick tricorn hat and a dark cloak with a monochrome capelet, 
both of which look like updated versions of her pilgrim roots. She's a sober study of of New England tradition, like a Nathaniel Hawthorne character with a pulse. Ella's character, Deborah, is modern, but she uses the same type of feminine arts that Letty uses to get a commitment out of Harry. Deborah manipulates Harry, makes him jealous by dangling a rival suitor under his nose. Someone else wants to marry her, and what is he prepared to do about it? As usual, Harry is unaware that he's not the one pulling the strings. After refusing one house after another like some kind of Goldilocks and low-heeled lace-up Oxfords and holding up Harry's wedding, Letty resorts to the same sickbed shenanigans that powerless women use to get their way. She fakes a heart attack. In bed, Letty is propped up under pillows so she looks like she just stepped out of a fairy tale waiting for her prince to come to his senses. The minute Esther brings news that Deborah married another man, Letty springs up and runs to Harry, wearing a very bridal-looking penoir set in diaphanous white. Uncle Harry was produced by Joan Harrison, follow-up to her big hit with Phantom Lady from 1944. Under contract with Universal, Harrison received $30,000 for the picture, plus $1,000 a week. Plus, she had a staff of two secretaries. Harrison took the stage play Uncle Harry by Thomas Job and imagined a more psychologically complex adaptation. The plot was changed and twists were added. She chose Robert Siodmak to direct after having worked with him on Phantom Lady. Somewhere along the line, the studio developed cold feet about the ending that Harrison and Siodmak both agreed on. Universal filmed and tested five different endings with preview audiences. The one they chose for the final cut wasn't even shot by Siodmak. He had refused to participate once they reversed their decision on the original ending. Geraldine Fitzgerald refused to be part of the revised ending, and hence she doesn't appear on screen in the final scene. Joan Harris was furious that they changed the ending, walked out of the studio, and terminated her contract. It took real guts to give up a sure thing when there were not many studios keen on having a woman on the lot as a producer. After the premiere, Hedda Hopper devoted her column in the Los Angeles Times to praising the film's producer. Under the headline, Wrath Made Joan Harrison a Producer, She wrote, a golden-haired ball of fire with the temper of a tarantula, the purring persuasiveness of a female archangel, the capacity of work of a family of beavers, and the sex appeal of a number one glamour girl. I love it when Hedda turns fangirl. Harrison wasn't out of work for long. After the success of Uncle Harry, RKO offered her a position as producer. She developed Nocturne with Lynn Barry and George Raft, which I told you about in episode 68. Among Geraldine's things, her son Michael found a telegram from Orson sent in 1941. It reads, It turns out I have to rush back to my office, and so I must postpone our lunch till the first day you get to Hollywood. 
Maybe it's just as well because I have so many wonderful things to tell you about yourself. You might think me extravagant unless you knew I had time to cool off. I never will about you, Orson. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Luck and Circumstance, A Coming of Age in Hollywood, New York, and Points Beyond by Michael Lindsay Hogg, published in 2011. Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, The Forgotten Woman Behind Hitchcock by Christina Lane, published in 2020. Emeralds in Tinseltown, The Irish in Hollywood by Steve Brennan and Bernadette O'Neill from 2007. In My Father's Shadow, A Daughter Remembers Orson Welles by Christopher Wells Fader from 2009. Orson Welles, The Road to Xanadu by Simon Callow from 1995. Join me next time, I promise, for Joan Crawford in Daisy Kenyon from 1947. Thanks very much.